History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 101, Calendar Madness. Well, we are over the hump, which means I want to start with a bit of housekeeping. Summer is fast approaching, and last year's sticker giveaway was so successful, I want to do it again. So anybody who signs up for the podcast Patreon between June 21st and September 23rd of 2023 will get a History of Persia podcast cuneiform sticker. It doesn't matter what tier you're at or what country you're in. You can sign up for that at patreon.com slash historyofpersia or just use the link in the description of every episode. If you're hearing this on Patreon, thank you for your support. I have to admit, three digits looks pretty strange, but here we are. Last time I celebrated episode 100 by ranking my top 10 Achaemenid kings, and some honorable mentions, and before that, I discussed the various forms of free and unfree labor in the Achaemenid Empire, from enslavement all the way up to skilled artisans. That means we left the narrative in episode 98 with Artaxerxes III's successful reconquest of Egypt following the defeat of several new rebellions in Phoenicia and Cyprus. But we are not going to move forward with that story just yet. Instead, I'm going to talk about the Serozas, a set of prayers in the Avesta connected to the Zoroastrian calendars. Listeners should recognize the pattern by now. Anyway, I've talked plenty about the calendar before. Basically, all of my Zoroastrian holiday episodes have to incorporate it one way or another. However, this one is going to be especially about the ancient calendars themselves, as they existed near the end of the Achaemenid period. But first, let's talk modern Zoroastrian calendars, because none of them are identical to their ancient counterparts. Modern Zoroastrians use one of four, or sort of five, calendars for religious purposes. In terms of what the actual calendar itself looks like on a day-to-day basis, they're not actually that different from the Achaemenid era. They are all attempts to keep major seasonal festivals in place while maintaining even 30-day months. 
This is accomplished with some combination of intercalary periods that differ from calendar to calendar. Intercalaries are spans of time that get inserted into the regular calendar, but are not included in any of the standard weeks and months. The most common Zoroastrian version of this is the five Gotha days that take place between the end of one year and the beginning of the next. The beginning of the next being Nauru's, discussed in the 2020 holiday special. These Gotha days each correspond with one of the hymns attributed to Zoroaster himself, and are actually the second half of a larger 10-day holiday, Frawardagon, which serves as a sort of parallel to the Day of the Dead and other similar traditions where spirits of the deceased are thought to be especially close or even in the mortal world. Just file Frawardagon in the back of your head for now. For most of the modern Zoroastrian calendars, which largely date back to the Middle Ages, that's it. 12 months of 30 days, plus 5 Gotha days to get to 365. Then they add a leap day every 4 years, like modern calendars, and you're all set. The exception to this is the Shahanshahi calendar, which is modeled on an early medieval system laid out in the religious commentary known as the Denkard. It features an extra six-hour period outside of any single day at the end of each year, so in between the Gotha days and Nauru's, plus a leap day every four years, adding ten days every forty years, a leap month of thirty days once every one hundred and twenty years, and five months once every six hundred years then you just hope nobody forgets that a year is supposed to be 17 months long once every six centuries. Fortunately, it's not really something that comes up very often. Literally, it's only happened once in the calendar's history. From some point after about 900 CE until the 18th century, this was actually the most common calendar system used by the Parsi community in northern India. With the arrival of things like British colonialism, a vaguely more stable government in Iran, and growing seaborne trade for everyone, more and more Iranian Zoroastrians started traveling to their co-religionists in India. They were understandably baffled by this calendar system, and encouraged local adoption of their own, far more comprehensible calendar, but it never really caught on for most Parsis. Most modern Zoroastrians outside of the Indian and British Parsi communities have adopted the Fosli calendar developed in 1906 on more modern scientific and scholarly standards. It functions almost identically to the more common Gregorian calendar, except for the vernal equinox, aka Nauru's, which is fixed to the equivalent of March 21st. Now, I hear you say, but the spring equinox is always March 21st. Not technically true, I'm afraid. 
according to the Gregorian calendar, it will shift by one day every 5,025 years. So mark your calendars. For our purposes discussing ancient history, it is far more interesting to discuss calendar eras, aka the system used to denote the year. Of course, the Achaemenids didn't really have a calendar era. Instead, they used regnal years that reset with the coronation of each great king. Most modern people use, or at least recognize, the Anno Domini or Common Era system, which, strictly speaking, is sort of a form of regnal year that just never resets on the basis that Jesus, the Lord, still rules into perpetuity. And if you'll permit a brief sidebar, for us, Year 1 corresponds to the birth of Jesus Christ according to the calculations of a 6th century monk who was trying to, and this is true, calculate the date of Easter, a holiday explicitly bound to the Jewish Passover that already has a very well-developed calendar of its own. Dionysius Exegesis wasn't trying to date any historical events, except for a short list of notable Easters. He just happened to say that he was living 525 years after the birth of Jesus. Dionysius did not explain how he got to that number, or even if he calculated it himself at all. One theory is that he just sort of picked a number over 500 to get people to stop worrying that the apocalypse was nigh, since many early medieval Christians thought that the Messiah would come again 500 years after his birth. Either way, the Venerable Bede, the 8th century English chronicler, copied Dionysius's Easter calculations and took that 525 number in good faith. Then, it was off to the races. That is where our calendar system comes from. Modern Zoroastrians tend to use one of two basic systems for their calendar era. Both of the more conservative Parsi calendars the Shahanshahi and the slightly older Kadimi version use the Yazdegerdi era. This system counts the years since the last Sassanid king's death while fleeing from the Arab conquest of the Rashidun Caliphate in 632, meaning it is currently 1391 Anno Yazdegerdi. The other option is the Zoroastrian era, dating time from the birth of the prophet Zoroaster himself. The issue with that is, nobody has ever been able to agree on when Zoroaster was born. Modern scholars would place it sometime around 1200 BCE. Coincidentally, none of the modern Zoroastrian dating systems use that. The popular modern Fosli calendar uses the equivalent of 1734 BCE as their start date, and it's easy to see why they associated that with Zoroaster, since the calendar was supposed to be based on cutting-edge research, 
1906. It is a good approximation of when the Indo-Iranian split occurred, maybe just a bit too early, but close enough. At that time, many scholars still thought that Zoroaster's reforms were either the cause or result of the linguistic split, which we now know to be untrue since there is a multi-century gap. However, in 1906 logic, Zoroaster would have lived around the 1700s to 1500s BCE. For reference, that means it is 3,757 AZ right now. Historically, though, the Zoroastrian era has been presented as a lot shorter. I will talk more about this later this year, or possibly in early 2024, but the late antique Sassanid sources and their early medieval successors tended to place Zoroaster 258 years before Alexander the Great, which we now know is not accurate, but again, that's a story for later. The more important thing here is that technically, that should be 614 BCE, 596 BCE, 592, or 581, depending on which milestone in Alexander's life you use. So naturally, none of them use those figures either. Common options start year one of the Zoroastrian era in the equivalent of 586 or 637 BCE. And, okay, record keeping hasn't always been the best. Throw in a couple of scribes who are bad at math and you can see how that happens. Then there's at least one Kurdish Zoroastrian community that places Zoroaster, remember, not Alexander, in 389. I've got no idea. Maybe it's just a rebranded version of the Seleucid calendar. Again, something for later. But even then, it adds an extra couple of decades. Getting back to the Achaemenids, we're actually going to follow those Kurds back to Anatolia, specifically Cappadocia, on the eastern side of the peninsula. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. 
I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. For most of its history, Cappadocia used its own regional calendar system, which is not unusual in historical terms. Many countries had their own calendar. What's interesting about Cappadocia's is that we can trace its origins very directly to the Achaemenid period. Eleven of the twelve months in the Cappadocian system are clearly derived from the Avestan names for the months, and the one exception, coincidentally also the first month of the year, was called Aratana, which is just a local word with the same meaning as the Avestan name Fravashinam, also the first month of the year. Crucially, these are based on the Avestan names for the months, not Old Persian. The Old Persian calendar also seems to have been based on the same principles as the Zoroastrian calendar, but either intentionally renamed the months, unlikely, or derived a distinct set of names, possibly from before the younger Avestan language version became so widespread. Whether Old Persian, Younger Avestan, or Cappadocian, these ancient Iranian calendars, and for all intents and purposes we can include Cappadocia as Iran at this point, all share a 360-day cycle of 12 months broken into 30 days. This calculation was very common in antiquity from cultures that made a rough approximation of the solar year. In some cases, they may even have calculated the more accurate 365 and a little more, but denied it in favor of the more mathematically and symbolically convenient 360. This was the case for the non-canonical Jewish book of Jubilees. Of course, you might not even notice a shift when fixed events like holidays happen year to year if there's only a 5.26-day difference. But within four or five years, those dates are going to be off by almost a month, meaning that events like harvest festivals, or Nauru's, celebrating the equinox, 
end up way out of line from the events they commemorate. In calendar systems that don't account for this with a set system, it leads to constant fiddling and recalculation. We don't know when Zoroastrians started adding the intercalary period to correct this. The earliest records come from 309 BCE, but the Cappadocian calendar and widespread use of the standardized Zoroastrian calendar in antiquity suggests that the intercalary period must have originated earlier. 309 was after the fall of the Achaemenids. Come on, I'm not being subtle at this point. The Achaemenid Empire provides the only point in time that all of the relevant regions were under one central authority and one central communication system. So it makes sense to attribute this shift to some point in their reign. The Old Persian calendar was probably developed alongside the Old Persian writing system for use in the Behistun inscription. Of course, since Old Persian writing didn't exist before that, we don't exactly have evidence one way or the other. But if we assume that the Persians used a similar 360-day solar calendar to other Iranians, the conquest of Egypt provides the perfect opportunity to introduce the 365-day version. Of course, it was Cambyses that conquered Egypt, but he hardly had time to leave, let alone introduce any reforms before his death. Darius the Great, on the other hand, famously introduced a large number of administrative reforms and returned to Persia with a large retinue of Egyptian doctors, scholars, and laborers. One of these Egyptians at least claimed to be a very close advisor to Cambyses and Darius, Wedjahoreznet. He was the Egyptian navy officer, priest, and physician who went over to the Persian side at the outset of Cambyses' campaign. He also advised both kings in matters of Egyptian royal protocol and religion, like developing their pharaonic titles. Darius would have seen the effectiveness of the Egyptians' 365-day calendar and may even have heard criticism of the Iranian 360-day system from his new advisors. But how to make it work? Well, another explanation comes from the reign of Artaxerxes II, mostly because he directed a major recalculation of the Babylonian lunar calendar, to realign holidays with their proper seasons. If Artaxerxes was meddling in one calendar, why not another? Lunar calendars require regular maintenance like this every century or so to recalibrate and keep seasonal festivals aligned. If Artaxerxes found through this process that his own people's calendar was also off-kilter, then he may have ordered reforms to the Persian system. In either case, this was probably accomplished by officially shifting the Frawardigan holiday into the intercalary period. However, many scholars have speculated that this caused confusion. Communication was far from instant, and it is very hard to get people to practice their religion in any other way than the one they already know. 
it seems that the introduction of five additional days to the calendar resulted in two back-to-back Frawardagons, one in the last five days of the 360-day year, and again in the intercalary days. The end result was, over time, an extended festival lasting ten days as practiced by modern Zoroastrians. The other possibility is that Darius introduced the 365-day year, but Artaxerxes' calendar project revealed the need for a leap day. The calendar would have shifted a whole month in between the two of them, and Artaxerxes may have directed a full 10-day intercalary period for a few years to course-correct, but the 10-day version of the holiday stuck even after the intercalary was reduced to 5. Setting aside the intercalary now, we turn to the Avesta. The surviving text of Zoroastrian scripture doesn't include a full guide to the calendar. Only seven of the twelve months are even mentioned. We can infer from how later Sassanid sources describe their Avesta, and from the sections that do survive, that such a guide probably existed at some point. As a result, some of the Avesta names actually have to be reconstructed from Middle Persian. Note that all of the Zoroastrian months correspond to the end of one month and beginning of the next in the Gregorian calendar, because Nauru's New Year's Day, is on the spring equinox in mid-March. So the first month, late March and early April, is called Fravashinam, modern Fravardin. It is named for the Fravashi, the sometimes confusing but always interesting good spirits somewhere between personal guardians and the souls of deceased ancestors. Every person has a Fravashi, and the Fravashi of great heroes are venerated in the Avesta, but how much they are distinct divinities or that literal person is somewhat open to interpretation. In Old Persian, the first month was Adukanaisha, which is actually untranslated. It might mean something like a time for record-keeping, or potentially something about being against the Druze, a.k.a. the great lie of Angramainu. The second month is Ashehe Vahishtahe, modern Ordebihest. It literally means the best truth, but is also the name of the concept and Amesha Spenta Asha, the perfect righteous order of the universe. Once again, Old Persian is different, calling this period Thura Vahara, the time of great spring. Third is Haruvatato, or modern Kordad, meaning wholeness or perfection, but once again, also the name of an Amesha Spenta, Haruvtat. For Old Persian, this was Thaigrakis, literally the garlic-collecting month. Fourth is Tishtrie, modern Tyr, named for the Yazada Tishtria, associated with the dog star Sirius and stars in general, 
To the old Persian administration, it was Garmapada, also the word for way stations along the royal road intended to get people out of the heat. Fitting since this one corresponds to June and July. The fifth month is Emeritato, modern Mordad, once again the name of an Amesha Spenta, Emeritat, aka Immortality. In Old Persian, this actually isn't mentioned in our records, but it is translated as Turnabazish in Elamite. Sixth is Kshatriya Vayyehe, modern Sharivar, and another Amesha Spenta's name, Kshatriya, righteous rule both a divinity and a concept similar to the European idea of divine right or the Chinese mandate of heaven. Once again, the old Persian name is missing, but it was translated to Elamite as Karbashiash, which makes this the first time we might be able to guess that the names were similar in both the religious calendar and the Persian administration. Imagine that, a calendar designed for a king keeps the month that is about his right to rule. Seven is one we've talked about in the past, in the 2022 holiday special. In the Avesta, it is Mithrahe, modern Mir, named for the Yazada Mithra. The old Persian form was Bagayadish, the month of the god, singular. Which god? Who knows? But its coincidence has led some scholars to suggest Mithra, since it is also the month of Maragon. Eight is Apam, modern Aban. Once again, this word you might remember. It's literally the waters, and half of the name of the Yazada Apamnapat, Anahita's masculine subordinate who represents the clean waters that flow over the earth. In Old Persian, this is the most badass month of all, Birkazana, literally the month of wolf killing. Why? Because it's mid-autumn now and you need to call the wolves before bringing the livestock into their smaller winter pastures. The ninth month is Athro, modern Ador, meaning fire. It's the name of the Yazada Atar the divine embodiment of fire, companion of Mithra, and conduit to Ahura Mazda. In Old Persian, it is Asidaya, a month for the worship of fire. Once again, we get some overlap. Ten is a weird one to compare the Avestan and Persian versions. The Avesta calls it Dathuso, modern day, meaning creator as in Ahura Mazda. It's a bit weird that he's just kind of stuck in the middle, but it does make sense that he gets a month. In Old Persian, this one is Anamaka, sometimes translated as the nameless god. What the heck does that mean? There obviously wasn't a taboo on Ahura Mazda's name, so it's not a direct carryover. However, we don't have any other references to the same concept in Old Persian. Scholars are wont to speculate on such things, but here's my theory. 
The Nameless God is a pretty strained translation of Anamaka already, and this corresponds to the winter solstice month, the darkest and bleakest time of the year, when the Daiva are closest to victory. What if this is an old Persian reference to Angramainu, or the Daiva Akomana? Hell, even a pun to cover up a taboo around one of those names. It would reflect the difference between the two calendars in month 11 as well. The 11th month, January and February, is Vaiheush Manaiho, or modern Bachman, derived from the name of the Amesha Spenta Vohumana, the embodiment of good thoughts, but grammatically tortured into the name of a month. He is the being who first revealed the truth to Zoroaster. Then, in Old Persian, where month 11 is Thwayova, literally the terrible one. Very different approaches to dealing with how miserable deep winter can be. In the Avesta, you celebrate two of the most important deities. Then, in Old Persian, you stress how terrible the winter is. Finally, the twelfth month is Spentayau Armatoish, modern Esfand. Once again, it's the name of an Amesha Spenta, Armighty, the embodiment of devotion and good religion. Here, Old Persian returns to the practical option. It's late February and early March, so the Persians called it Vyaksana, the digging up. It was time to prep the fields for planting. You can see how the Avestan version revels in the importance of religion and hope or benefits that religion can provide, while the old Persian calendar is an administrative tool with the names directly signaling the important events for each month. Then we turn to the days themselves. Rather than just counting numbers, which you can obviously do with any sequence of days, the Zoroastrian calendar moves through a set roster of divinities each month. Since each month is 30 days, you move through the list and then cycle back to the beginning over and over. These days are associated with two sets of prayers, the Serozas, short invocations dedicated to the divinity being celebrated each day. They are pretty short, and both sets largely say the same thing, with the second set framed in terms of sacrifices or offerings. So I'm just going to read through the first set and give commentary as we go. For some of the longer ones, I'll let you know if I'm summarizing. 1. Ahura Mazda To Ahura Mazda, bright and glorious, and to the Amesha Spentas, then also we sacrifice unto the brightness and glorious Ahura Mazda. We sacrifice unto the Amesha Spentas, the all-ruling, the all-beneficent. That's all pretty predictable for the most important beings in the Pantheon. 2. Vohumana To Vohumana, to peace, whose breath is friendly, and who is more powerful to destroy than all other creatures. 
to the heavenly wisdom made by Mazda, and to the wisdom acquired through the ear made by Mazda. Once again, not a whole lot to say about it, but it is interesting to see that good thought is associated with wisdom. Third is Asha. To Asha Vahista, the fairest, to the much-desired Eryaman made by Mazda, to the instrument made by Mazda, and to the good Sayoka, with eyes of love, made by Mazda and holy, Eryaman and Sayoka being other Yazadas. Eryaman specifically being an embodiment of the Iranian people. Fourth is Kshatra. To Kshatra Vaira, to the medals, to mercy and charity. It's very short, but interesting enough. Kshatra is one of several divinities associating with metalworking in addition to his rule as the divinity of kingship. You can see the connection between kingship and warfare and metalworking and craftsmanship and all of that. Armighty. To the good Spenta Armighty and to the good Rata, with eyes of love made by Mazda and holy, and to Horuvtat, the master, to the prosperity of the seasons and to the years, the master of holiness. The Day of Our Mighty gets a kind of two-for-one deal, combining two Amesha Spentas into one prayer. It also leads into six, which is Horuvtat, we sacrifice unto Horuftat, the Amesha Spenta. We sacrifice unto the prosperity of the seasons. We sacrifice unto the years, the holy and masters of holiness. Seven is Emeritat. To Emeritat, the master, to fatness and flocks, to the plenty of grain, and to the powerful Haoma made by Mazda. Emeritat is being celebrated for her patronage of the bounty of the earth. Eight is interesting. It is the Dai Pa Adar, literally the day before Adar. To divide the months into weeks every seven or eight days are dedicated to Ahura Mazda himself and not named for a separate divinity. So the prayer for this one is... To the maker Ahura Mazda, bright and glorious, and to the Amesha Spentas. No surprise that after the day before Adar, we get day nine, Atar, the fire. His is actually one of the longest Sarozas, giving praise repeatedly to Atar himself, and then to a list of landmarks, legendary heroes, and social groups like the Arya as a whole. Tenth is a palm. To a palm the pot, made by Mazda, to the holy water spring Arvi Anahita, to all the waters made by Ahura Mazda, to all plants made by Mazda. Once again, we see a palm getting overshadowed by the immense importance of Anahita, but everything is wrapped up in the theme of water. Eleven is Hivare, the Yazada of the Sun. To the undying, swift-horsed Hivare Kashaitha. That's all it says, but 
I will also refer you to episode 77, where I read through his entire Yasht. Day 12 is Ma, the moon. To the moon that keeps in it the seed of Gavivodota, to the only created bull, to the bull of many species. This is a reference to the creation story, also discussed in 77. Then we get 13, Tishtria. But his prayer is also dedicated to a host of other Yazadas associated with the stars and the sky. To Tishtria, the bright and glorious star, to the powerful Satavaisya, made by Mazda, who pushes the waters forward, to the stars made by Mazda that have in them the seed of the waters, the seed of the earth, the seed of the plants, to the star Vanant, made by Mazda, to those stars that are seven in number, the Hapturingas, made by Mazda, glorious and healing. Fourteen is Gos, the Yazada of cattle. To the body of Gos, to the soul of Gos, to the powerful Drivaspa, made by Mazda and holy. Drivaspa being another Yazada and a guardian of cattle. Fifteen is the Dai Pa Mihir, the day before Mithra, and repeats the same invocation of Mazda and the Amesha Spentas, seen in the Dai Pa Adar. Sixteen, surprise, it's Mithra. To Mithra, the lord of wide pastures, who has a thousand ears and ten thousand eyes, a god invoked by his own name, to Rama Hivashtra. For more on Mithra and his connection to the Yazada Rama, see the 2022 holiday special. Why it's significant that Mithra is invoked by his own name is not very clear. Seemingly, all of the others are also invoked by name, and if they are only invoked by the concept they represent, well, Mithra's name also just means oath, so he's also the concept that he represents. Seventeen goes to another of Mithra's companions, Srosha, patron of human conscience. To the holy strong Srosha, who is the incarnate word, a mighty speared and lordly god. Eighteen is Roshnu. To Roshnu Razista, to Arstat, who together make the world grow, who make the world increase, to the true spoken speech that makes the world grow. Both are fairly obscure Yazadas, but associated with Mithra, and we get a reference to true spoken speech, as in good words in the lineup of good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Nineteen is for the Fravashis. To the inspiring, overpowering Fravashis of the Holy Ones. That's all. Based on the Fravardin Yasht, the Holy Ones refers to the greatest heroes and leaders of the ancient past. Day 20 is Verathronga, the Azada of victory and battle who fights by Mithra's side as a boar in the night sky. To the well-shapen, tall-formed strength, to Verathronga, made by Ahura to the crushing ascendant. 21 is Rama, 
We sacrifice unto Rama Hivastra. We sacrifice unto Holy Vayu. We sacrifice unto Vayu who works highly and is more powerful to destroy than all other creatures. Unto that part of thee do we sacrifice, O Vayu, that belongs to Spenta Mainu. We sacrifice unto the sovereign Thwasha. We sacrifice unto the boundless Zervan. We sacrifice unto Zervan of the Long Dominion. The Yazada of the day is quite obscure, despite sharing his name with a great Indian hero god. Like the Ram Yasht, Rama's Saroza immediately switches focus to his companion Vayu, patron of the wind. However, it is this last bit that is really interesting. Thwasha is the Yazada associated with the sky, Spentaminu the most important of the Amesha Spentas. You can see how they get tied into just about any prayer. But it's Zervon that grabs my attention. Zervon went on to be very important in later Zoroastrianism, possibly beginning in the late Achaemenid period. He is the god of time, who appears in two forms. There is boundless time, the time scale of Ahura Mazda before the creation of the world, and from his place in heaven observing it, and after the end all at once. The Long Dominion is the constrained, organized time of our mortal world. And why exactly Zervan is connected to Rama is very unclear. The 22nd day is Vata, aka Vayuvata, the same divinity of the wind that overtakes all of the prayers for Rama. To the bounteous Vata that blows below, above, before, and behind, to the manly courage. 23 is the Daipadin, the day before Kishtya. Once again, dedicated to Ahura Mazda and the Amesha Spentas. No points for guessing, 24 is Kishtya, a protective Yazada, but also commonly associated with Dina the righteous practice of religion. To the most right Kista, made by Mazda and holy, to the good Dina of the worshippers of Mazda. The 25th is officially the day of Ashi, embodiment of piety, but the prayer is also directed at several Yazadas. To Ashi Vanguhi, to the good Kisti, to the good Orethi, to the good Rasastat, to the wheel and glory made by Mazda, to Perendi of the light chariot, to the glory of the Aryas made by Mazda, to the kingly glory, Kishathra made by Mazda, to the glory that cannot be forcibly seized made by Mazda, to the glory of Zarathustra made by Mazda. 26 is Arshthat, the Yazada of plants, agriculture, and fertility. To Arshthat who makes the world grow, to Mount Ushi Darena made by Mazda, the seat of holy happiness. Arshthat is apparently associated with a mountain referred to by the Avestan speakers as Ushti Darena. 
we cannot know what specific mountain this was intended to refer to. 27 is Ashna. Like many Gezadas, this is a concept made manifest. Specifically, Ashau is heaven, where the Yazadas and Ahura Mazda exist beyond the mortal world. To the high, powerful Ajna, to the bright, all-happy, blissful abode of the Holy Ones. 28 is Zam, the patron of the earth, as in soil. To the bounteous Zam, to these places, to these fields, to Mount Ushi Darena, made by Mazda, the seat of holy happiness, to all mountains made by Mazda, that are seats of holy happiness, of full happiness, to the kingly glory made by Mazda, to that glory that cannot be forcibly seized, made by Mazda. The 29th is Mantra Spenta. Not a Yazada, but a sacred invocation to be praised in its own right. To the holy righteousness performing Mantra Spenta, to Dinah opposed to the Daivas, the Dinah of Zarathustra, to the long traditional teaching, to the good Dinah of the worshippers of Mazda, to Ashi, to the Mantra Spenta, to the understanding that keeps the law of the worshippers of Mazda, to the knowledge of the Mantra Spenta, to the heavenly wisdom made by Mazda, to the wisdom acquired through the ear and made by Mazda. This prayer itself is not the mantra spenta. It is just recited on a day honoring the invocation, probably intended as a broad concept of all good mantras. But of course, there is one refrain in particular that is held up above all others in Zoroastrianism. Humata Hukta Huvarshta. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Finally, we have the most abstract day, dedicated to Anagra Rauka, endless light. To the eternal and sovereign luminous space, to the bright Garo Nimana, to the sovereign place of eternal community, to the Chinvat Bridge made by Mazda, to the tall lord upon the pot, and to the water made by Mazda, to Hauma of holy birth, to the pious and good blessing, to the awful cursing thought of the wise, to all the holy gods of the heavenly world and the material one, to the awful overpowering Fravashis, of the faithful, to the Fravashis of the first men of the law, to the Fravashis of the next of kin, to the god invoked by his own name. It is fitting, perhaps, that the final day of the month invokes the widest, broadest concept of endless light, all good things, and highlights the bridge to heaven, Ahura Mazda himself, the blessing of waters, Mithra, the guardian spirits of great heroes and beloved ancestors. In several parts of the Avesta and 
further elaborated on in later commentaries, Endless Light is the existence of Ahura Mazda before the creation of the material world. And that brings me to the end of the Sirozas, the prayers dedicated to each god on each day of each month. Next time, we go back to the narrative and investigate the happenings around Artaxerxes III's royal court, especially those involving his favored advisor, Bagoas. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.